The sermon text is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, and you can find it on page 569 in the paper Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. We are wrapping up our study of Ephesians pretty soon. We're almost done with this book, actually. It's kind of hard to believe. Um, but if you remember, if you've been with us, up to this point, Paul has been explaining to us God's amazing plan for all of creation. He summed it up in chapter 1 where he said, this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That's God's big plan. He's bringing all things together in Him. And so throughout this book, He has shown us how God has taken us who were aliens, we who were strangers, and now He's made us a family. He's brought us into the household of God. He's shown us how through Christ, He has broken down the dividing walls so that everyone can come, so that there's no longer these unnecessary divisions, but instead in Jesus, we all come together into the same church. And most recently, in the last couple of chapters, He's shown us how God intends us as His people to live together. He's shown us this picture of this beautiful, reconciled, and redeemed relationships that we can have with each other as we learn to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And all this stuff's been really great. There's a lot of positive things here. There's these great promises that God offers to us. But now here at the end, a few verses away from the end of this book, in this last chapter, God gives, uh, Paul gives us this really sobering warning, this sobering word. He says that we have an enemy. We have an enemy that Satan and those in his charge is set against us. And they have a mission. Their mission is contrary to all that great stuff that Paul has told us God is doing. So John Stott, he put it this way. He said, is God's plan to create a new society? Well, then they will do their best to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the dividing walls between human beings of different races and cultures? Well, then the devil, through his emissaries, will do everything they can to build those walls back up. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Well, then the powers of hell will scatter them among the seeds of discord and sin. That should jar us. That should shake us a little bit. That should stop us in our tracks. It should remind us that this life that we're living is a serious one. This battle we're in is not a joke. But there's also some good news in here. As we look at this chapter, as we look at this passage, there, there is some hope. Paul is giving us this warning so that we can have hope. He's showing us that if we know about this, if we are aware of this adversary, if we're prepared for his tasks, then we, then we will be able to stand. 
If we know what's coming, we'll be able to stand against the attack. And so as I've studied that this week, as, we've, as I've thought about this passage, I really believe there's probably no more important passage we could be studying today. This is really timely. This is helpful for us and, and important. And so I want us to look really simply today at, at a few things. I want us first to see our enemy, to see who he is. And then secondly, I want to understand his devices, to discover the ways that he attacks us. And then thirdly, I want us to discover the remedy to find the cure. And before we jump into those three things, I just want to make this statement at the outset. I I never have an original thought when I preach. That's just a fact. (laughs) I'm always relying on other people who have come before me, and that is certainly the case this week. But this week, I've been particularly influenced by some things I've read from John Stott and Tim Keller, and especially this Puritan writer named Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks, back in the 1600s, wrote this treatise called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And what I would love to recommend is that you guys all just grab that and read that this week, but you probably won't, (laughs) and that's okay. But instead, it's free online, and I would suggest if you just read the table of contents in the book, you will probably get a lot out of it. It's probably the most edifying thing I've read in a long time. Um, But just letting you know, a lot of this stuff I'm saying comes from him. So the first thing I want us to do today is to see our enemy. Uh, Has anybody here ever had the misfortune of, of having bed bugs? Yeah, we have. <laughs> We've had bed bugs. And bed bugs are, are miserable. It's awful. We, we had it at a, one of our apartments uh, in Dorchester a, a while back. And if you don't know, the process of getting rid of bed bugs is excruciating, especially depending on how much you're able to pay, right? So our, our landlord didn't want the most expensive treatment. So instead, we ended up having to pack up all of our things like we were moving seal everything in plastic bags, and live that way for three months. And every month they would come treat, and every month they would bring dogs out to sniff around, and eventually they got rid of the bed bugs. But I'll, I'll tell you, during that whole time, this awful infestation that we had, I never saw a single bed bug. Now, I suffered from them. Our whole family suffered from them. We had bites all over us. We had to be extremely careful whenever we went to visit other people's houses to wash our clothes and to be careful we weren't, you know, quietly spreading eggs into their home. It was, it was torture. But I never saw a single bed bug. And I was wondering, as I thought about that this week, what if we didn't know what bed bugs were? What if we didn't believe there were any bedbugs? How much more suffering would we have had to endure? How long would we have lived with all that pain? How many of our friends would have suffered as we brought those things and spread them around the city? I think that might be a picture of the church today. That we are suffering needlessly. We are suffering far more than we should because we are unaware of our enemy and we don't know how to handle him. Especially for Christians in America. I think a lot of us, we just don't know anything about Satan. We don't think about him very often. And if we're being honest, I think a lot of us would would have to say we don't actually believe we have an enemy. So let's just start there. Let's start with that very simple point. We do have an enemy. Verse 12 of chapter 6, it says, For we do not wrestle 
against flesh and blood. We have an enemy. Paul wants us to know we have an enemy. Now, to our modern sensibilities, that seems kind of silly, right? To the modern mind, when we think about the devil, we think about cartoon characters. We think about team mascots. We think about something that, that seems kind of backwards, kind of, kind of foolish to believe in. But if that's you, if that resonates with you this morning, let me just give you a few quick things to consider. One, if you think it's foolish to think that there is a, a personal spiritual evil, well, your view, I want to say, is a little bit arrogant. It's, it's a little bit snobbish. It's a little bit rooted in your own culture. Because the fact is, while we in America, in, especially amongst the, the educated, uh, might turn our nose at the idea of evil, the, the majority of the world feels very differently. The majority of the world has no problem believing in Satan, no problem believing that there is a spiritual evil force in this world. And maybe, just maybe, our culture is the one that has something to learn. Maybe we're the ones whose assumptions are wrong. Just something to consider. Another thing I, I think I, is worth thinking about is if you do believe in a God, if you do believe that there is a personal spiritual good in the universe, well, it's kind of inconsistent to think there could not also be evil. Logically, I think we could, we could expect that if there is a God who is good, there may also be some spiritual evil in this world. And thirdly, I, I think another thing to consider is it's a pretty simple view if you're trying to explain this, all of the terrible things that happen in this world without introducing the idea of, of a spiritual reality, without believing that there is evil in this world. Now, true, true in, in every bad thing you can think of, there are certain social elements that take place. There, there are psychological elements. There are scientific factors at play. But I think it's contrary to reason to think that there is nothing else going on there, that there is, there is no other dimension to those most horrific and gruesome things that we have seen in human history. When you think of the Holocaust, when you think of genocide, when you think of some of those most horrific crimes that you might have read about or, or seen on TV, why wouldn't there be more to it? Why wouldn't there be something deeper behind those things? And then the last thing I want to say as Christians, the Bible talks about evil all the time. The Bible talks very specifically and very clearly about this as a reality. And what you saw, we read that other reading from the book of Acts, that if we don't understand our enemy, the Bible shows us we're going to get our butts kicked. We're in trouble if we don't take this seriously. No, in verse 12, Paul tells us that we have an enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And look at how he describes it. He says, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, think about those words. He didn't say you wrestle against the entry-level employees or, or the temps. You don't wrestle against the interns, right? He uses these big words. 
the rulers, the authorities. Paul wants us to know that our enemy is powerful. Our enemy is powerful and he is against us. Did you hear that word against when Manny read it? It shows up six different times in these three verses. Our enemy is against us and we are foolish if we think we can get by his attacks without any kind of preparation or any kind of thought. It would be like, like me walking onto a basketball court with LeBron James and assuming that I was going to be able to dunk on him, right? It's ridiculous. It's an absurd idea. One pastor said it this way. He said, a thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. But on the other hand, if we underestimate our enemy, we will see no need for God's armor. And we're going to go into the battle unarmed with no weapons but our own puny strength. And we will be quickly humiliated and we will be defeated. And so that's where we're starting right now. That's where we need to start. We need to see that we have an enemy. There really is an enemy. He exists. He is powerful. And he is against us. And that means that we need to be prepared. So how do we get prepared? Well, this is the second thing I want to talk about this morning. We need to understand his devices. We need to understand the enemy's devices. Look again at verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. Now before we talk about what those schemes might be, it's, it's probably worth mentioning, it is possible to over-spiritualize your life. It's possible to over-spiritualize your experience of being a Christian. You know, if, if you're driving to pick up a pizza and all the lights turn red and by the time you get to pick up your pizza, it's cold, that's probably not spiritual warfare. It's probably not the devil who's standing against you making your food cold, right? And maybe you know some people like that who blame every little thing on the devil, blame every little thing on Satan. And, and I want to say, if, if that's your temptation, if that's your tendency, you're missing the big picture. You're missing the real battle that's taking place. That kind of stuff is really a sideshow. That's not what the devil's schemes are. The main tool that Satan uses in our lives are not big things like that. It's not those major outward afflictions. Now, sometimes it is, right? Like in the book of Job, you read about how at the beginning Satan afflicted him and took away his health, took away his family, took away his wealth. Sometimes those are the kinds of tools that Satan uses, but most of the time he uses something far more common and far more difficult to contend with. Jesus, in John chapter 8, he describes Satan like this. He says, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The main weapon of Satan, the main scheme of Satan, is to lie. It's to deceive us. And that deception has, it's a coin with two sides. On one side, you have temptation. 
And on the other side, you have accusation. Temptation is that lie that Satan tells us that tells us you're going to be happier apart from God. That by seeking something that is contrary to his will, you're going to be satisfied. And accusation is the lie that you are not welcome before God. That your sin is too great. That your failures are too frequent. And because of that, you are cut off from His love. You are unwelcome in His presence. And so those are the two main categories we're working with. Those are the main schemes that I want us to address in the next couple of minutes. Because within those two categories of temptation and accusation, there are a thousand different ways that our enemy likes to come at us. So I want to share with you just a, a few of those from this book I was talking about, Thomas Brooks. And as I do, I would love to invite you guys to, to really consider them. Kind of assess your own life as I read through this list, as I describe what these things are. Ask yourself, how am I experiencing these things in my own life today? The first way of tempting us that Thomas Brooks talks about, he says that, that Satan works by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. He shows us the promises of sin, but never the pain that comes at the end of it. He shows us the pleasure. He shows us the good things. He shows us what seems attractive about sin, but he hides that emptiness that follows it. He hides the wrath of God that comes from it. He hides the misery that's surely going to be on the other end. He shows us the, the pleasure of drunkenness, but he never tells us about the hangover. That's one way he attacks. Another way that he tempts us is by lessening sin. By telling us that our sin isn't really that big of a deal. You know this one? Where you say, oh, it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit of lust, right? It's just a, a little bit of anger. Just a little bit of envy. Last week we did this sports camp for kids, and every week I had to give, every day I had to give the, the presentation, the gospel presentation at the end, which was a tall order. I was pretty nervous. I was probably more nervous about talking to the kids than I ever would be about talking to, to adults. Um, but to prepare for it, I went online and I like watched YouTube videos of different kids' gospel presentations. And one of them I, I watched was a pastor who had grown up in another part of the world. And he was sharing with this kid about living in this area of the world where there was quicksand. And as a child, he saw the quicksand and he knew that it was dangerous, but he also knew that it was kind of fun. And so he would go up to the quicksand and he would stick his toe in the quicksand and then let it sink in and then pull it back out. And he would go up and he would stick his heel into the quicksand and he would let it sink in a little bit and then he would pull it back out. But then one day, he made the mistake of, of getting too far into the quicksand, and he started to sink. And the more that he tried to struggle and pull himself back out, the deeper he sunk until finally he was waist deep into the quicksand. Thankfully, somebody heard him screaming, and they ran out there to rescue him, and he said, but, that, but it took three grown men to pull him out, and when they did, it nearly broke his legs because of the pressure it took to get him out of there. The point is, he told himself that this was just a small thing, 
That this was easy. That, that he would be able to control it. That he could take care of it. But there is no small sin. We can't control sin. There is no small sin. 1 Corinthians says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you might say, well, it's just a grudge. It's just a little bit of unforgiveness in my life. There's just one relationship that's unreconciled, but I can deal with it. That's fine. But do you know that's the very example that, that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians when he says we should not be outwitted by Satan? Unforgiveness. He says we should not be unwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs. He tempts us by making sin seem so small. But then we get swallowed up by it. And we can't get out. Another way that Satan tempts us is by showing us how painful obedience is. Do you know this one? The way uh, Thomas Brooks puts it, he says, by presenting the soul with the crosses, losses, reproaches and sorrows and sufferings of the godly. You know what, I, what I'm talking about? Like when you see a righteous person and you see how hard their life is. When you see what it might mean for you to be obedient to God and you realize that's a burden. You realize holiness is much harder than just going with my own desires. Obedience to God is is, is painful. And then you look over and you see somebody who has complete disregard for God's law and it seems like they're doing alright. It seems like their life is, is pretty good. Satan makes it so that we can only see the death in following Christ, right? Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. But Satan hides the life on the other side. You, you remember the hymn, Wonder, The Wonderful Cross, right? He bids me come and die and find that I may truly live, right? There's death, but there's life on the other side. But Satan so distracts us with the cost of following Jesus that instead we run away from our Savior and into the arms of our enemy who wants to destroy us. And those are just a few of them. There's a whole lot more that we could, we could talk about today. But, but the point is that in temptation, our enemy tempts us by making sin look attractive and making it look harmless. But then accusation is the other side of that. Accusation comes when instead of enticing you away from God, you are so overcome by your sinfulness that you stay away from God. One way that our enemy does this is by causing us to pay more attention to our sin than to our Savior. To get our eyes so fixed upon our failings that we never look up to see His offer of grace. That we're so focused on the disease within us that we don't see the cure that's offered to us. And so we feel unworthy before God. We feel unwelcome to come to God. We think, my sin is too great. When we think about God, we imagine Him scowling at us with anger. 
Have you been there? Have you been in that place? That despite your repentance, you, you feel like God is scowling at you. Maybe some of you are there right now. What might be behind that thought? Who might be behind that thought? Another way that uh, Thomas Boston puts accusation, he says one thing that Satan does is uh, he reminds the soul of your relapses into the same sin which formerly you have pursued with sorrow, grief, shame, and tears and prayed and complained and resolved against. In other words, he reminds you of how many times you've fallen into the exact same sin and how many times you were so serious in repenting and how many times you've fallen again. Now what I've loved about reading this book this week is it's 400 years old. And every single one of those things I've read are exactly the same as the temptations that we experience today. The plan hasn't changed. The devil says to you, how could you possibly do that same thing again? Maybe you're not really a Christian to begin with. Well, you can't possibly go back to him now. You promised last time you were going to change. How could you come back to him again when, you, when you've already said you were going to be different? And so what do we do? We delay our repentance we, we turn away from the Lord, the Lord who longs to heal us and to welcome us back. And so far, a lot of these things I'm talking about, I've been thinking of them in terms of Christians, right? Things that we as, as Christians struggle with. But I want to tell you, it's the same for non-believers. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're here this morning, the truth is, it's the same kind of attack. Satan is always lying to all of us to convince us that our sins are too big to be forgiven. That our Christ is unwilling to save. Or that it won't be worth it to go to Him because the cost is too high. That life apart from Him might be better. We are all being lured into that same trap. Satan's plan is the same as it was 400 years ago, and it's the same as it was in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. He wants us to be deceived into sin. And he wants us to join him in his misery, in his eternal punishment apart from God. That's where Satan wants you. He wants us to doubt the holiness of God. He wants us to doubt the goodness of His commands so that we are inclined to chase after our own desires instead of His. He wants us to doubt the mercy of God. He wants us to mistrust His faithfulness so that we're always insecure, so that we're always doubting, so that we're always joyless and fearful of coming to the throne of grace. We have an enemy. But we are not ignorant of his schemes. So let me pause right now and just ask you again. I've, I've rambled through a lot of things. But as you've thought about them, just ask yourself, what voices have I been listening to this week? Do I believe that God can really meet my needs? Do I believe that God is more beautiful 
more satisfying than my sin? Do I believe that I'm welcome in His presence? Do I believe He will accept me if I come to Him in repentance? Or am I under attack? Am I believing lies? Well, now let's talk about the remedy for those lies. This is the third thing I want to mention today. Those are heavy things. And this would be a really terrifying passage if it were disconnected from the promises. If it were disconnected from the rest of the book and all the other good things that it tells us. But actually, this passage is meant to be hopeful. This passage is meant to lead us into triumph. Lately, I've been, uh, I've been playing Fortnite. Anybody playing Fortnite? It's a video game. It's, uh, it's free. Um, like 100 million people play it every day, apparently. Um, it's a pretty cool game. The way it works is you get dropped into this little scene, and there's 100 people trying to fight it out to be the last one standing. And the most interesting thing about this game, compared to any other game I've, I've played, is that there's, there's no instructions. There's no tutorial for the game. You just start playing, and you just get rocked by everyone else who knows what they're doing. So, like, for the first few days while you're playing, you're just getting killed over and over again. And the game is forcing you to figure it out. But once you do, once you figure out where to find some shields and get a rocket launcher and some sniper weapons and stuff like that, the game becomes a lot more fun. Uh, it takes on a new dimension. You learn how to, to last longer. I think, similarly, the church doesn't know how to use its defenses. The church is in a dangerous place, and because of that, we, we, we drop in and we get wiped out, we get beaten down. We spend our days like this, don't we, in doubt and fear and discouragement. We fall for the bait and we get hooked. We get caught in the sorrow and the discouragement of our sin because we don't know how to protect ourselves. We haven't learned how to avail ourselves of the power that's available to us. And if we don't discover these remedies, we're doomed. But once we do, Paul says, what does he say? He says that we will be able to stand firm, right? That's the last word in our passage this morning. And having done all, to stand firm. So what is the remedy? Well, thankfully, it's not like Fortnite, actually, because <laughs> there are instructions. We aren't left to just guess and figure it out ourselves. We don't have to just keep taking beatings until we learn, but it says it right here. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's the remedy. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The call here is that we would learn not to hope in our own strength, not to hope in our own wisdom, not to hope in our own ability to duke it out, but instead to place ourselves in Jesus who has won the victory already. See, only the gospel can give you what you need 
to counter the attacks of the enemy. Because only the Gospel speaks truth to us when the devil lies. In the face of temptation, the Gospel speaks truth to us. Do you know that? In the face of temptation, the Gospel shows us the true weight of sin. You might be tempted by the bait this morning. You might even right now be living in sin. You might be delighting in the pleasures of sin. Maybe your life is characterized by some of that unforgiveness we talked about. Or maybe you are caught up in lies yourself and deceiving the people you love. Maybe you're just living for pleasure. Maybe you are living in open rebellion against the law of God. And maybe you think you're going to be fine living that way. But the Gospel reminds us of the true cost of sin. That the wages of sin is death. That sin leads to eternal separation from God. That sin has brought the wrath of God upon us and then it is leading us to our destruction. And so what seems to be bringing you pleasure right now the Gospel tells us will one day end in sorrow. Job chapter 20, it says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. Sin seems sweet, but the Gospel tells us the wages of sin is death. The Gospel shows us that the sin that you're chasing after, the sin that you're delighting in, caused Christ to die. That is why Jesus had to give His life for you. But the Gospel, it also speaks truth against the accusations of the devil. Do you know that? You see, the glory of the cross is that Jesus has fully paid for our sins with His blood. And we are hidden in Him. If you come to Him in repentance and faith, you are clothed in His righteousness. You are freed from sin's power to condemn you because the condemnation was put on Him. And so that means that while you and I, if you're a believer, sin will still be present in your life. The battle will continue to rage on, but it means sin cannot condemn you anymore. Jesus has taken that condemnation. Jesus has taken your place. One pastor said, he said, the Gospel will not always tell you that you are innocent, but it will always tell you that you're loved. And so, if you find yourself this morning like the prodigal son, waking up in the muck of your sin, I want to invite you to run home to your Father who welcomes you with open arms. And here's my, my final word to you all this morning. That book that Thomas Boston wrote is called The Precious Remedy Against Satan's Devices. It's a very Puritan-sounding title. But I want to tell you that honestly, the, the true precious remedy is available right here for us. Next week, we're going to talk about more how to fight. We're going to look at the armor of God. We're going to talk about how to, how to fight back. But today, I, I want to encourage you just to know this. 
We do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood alone. We have an enemy, and that enemy is powerful. In fact, he is too powerful for you. He is too powerful for me. He is too powerful for us. He will defeat us. But he is not strong enough to defeat our Savior. And it's in him that we rest. It's in him that we stand. And so this morning, if you are beaten down and broken, this morning, if you are living in rebellion and you are lost, I want to invite you all to come here. Come to Him. Come to Him for His protection. Come to Him in repentance and faith. Come to Him today and be restored. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your power that dwells within us, Lord. We thank You for the victory of Christ on the cross. We thank You, Lord, that we don't have to stand in our own strength, but we stand in Your strength. Lord, we are weak. We are miserable failures, Lord. But I pray, God, that we would see Your welcome in Jesus. And Lord, I know many of us have found ourselves caught again in sin we hoped we'd never be in. Lord, I pray that You would give us the faith to repent again. To come back humbly again. To beg Your forgiveness again and find there in Christ the Father whose arms are open wide. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.